It's really great to be here this morning, and it is always good to be able to open God's Word together. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 12. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Ushers are coming forward. They're happy to give you one, and, and if you don't have one at home, you're welcome to take it home with you. So Genesis chapter 12 is where we're going to be turning our attention this morning. Before we read Genesis 12, I want to just read a couple of verses from Isaiah 66. These are, I think, an appropriate way for us to prepare our hearts and our minds to come before the Lord's Word. So let me read this from Isaiah 66, and then we'll turn our attention to Genesis 12. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. And then listen to this. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of heart. And who trembles at my word. So let's approach God's word with humility. With contrition with hearts that are open to learn. That's what we desire to do this morning. I want to read Genesis 12, the whole chapter, and then pray, and then we'll look at it in more detail together. Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Morah. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing toward the Negev. Now, there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. It came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it may go well with me because of you, and that I may live on account of you. 
came about when Abram came into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore, he treated Abram well for her sake and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time you've given us this morning. Thank you for giving us your word. You've been so kind to us and entrusting your word with us. We know that Your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and it's able to pierce to the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. So we pray this morning that by your spirit, you would use your word in our hearts. Convict us of sin, teach us, train us, reveal to us your son in its pages. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this is a turning point in the book of Genesis. It's a turning point in a number of ways. If you start at the beginning of Genesis, start in Genesis 1 with the creation of the heavens and the earth and the creation of man and move on, what you realize is there's this huge wide-angle lens that Genesis is looking at the world through. First 11 chapters of Genesis cover thousands and thousands of years, and, and, and they're looking at the whole earth and everyone on the earth, and, and, and you know, in the flood, everything is destroyed except Noah and his family, and it's this global picture and, and this huge span of time. But when we reach Genesis 12, for the next 39 chapters of the book, what we have are four generations One family, very narrowly focused in one particular region of the world. So it's a strange turn. Global picture, thousands of years to four generations, one family, and one strip of real estate. And furthermore, there's something else that happens in Genesis 12 that we're going to see today. And this is really one of the main things we're going to see when we come to this chapter. Genesis 1 through 11 introduce this huge problem. And the problem is sin. Because after Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3, the sin just spreads It gets worse and worse. So if you move from Genesis 3 where the fall takes place and Genesis 6, in Genesis 6 it says, And God saw that every thought of man's heart was always evil all the time. It's a pretty comprehensive statement. So the sin problem has gotten worse. It separated human beings from God. And 
And perhaps worst of all, it's internal. So that even after God saves Noah and his family on the ark, when they get off the ark, they're still sinners. So one of the first things we see Noah do when he gets off the ark is we see Noah plant this vineyard and gets drunk and there's some kind of sexual sin with his sons. And so the problem continues. And even after the flood, it spreads because last week we looked at the Tower of Babel where where all the people of the earth are gathered together in opposition to the Lord to make a name for themselves. So, So the question is, when you get to the end of Genesis 11, what is God going to do about this problem of sin? What can possibly change? He's judged the whole world. He scattered them at the Tower of Babel. And now what? So there's a change in terms of the characters and the scope, but there's also an important question that begins to be answered in Genesis 12. And the question is, what is God's answer to the problem of sin? You know, I don't have to tell you this, but the problem of sin is still very much alive and well. Look around the world, we see all kinds of evil and injustice and sin rampant. Read the newspaper. But, but, but even closer to home, just, just look at yourself. Look in your own heart. You might try to get around the reality by comparing yourself favorably with someone else. But the truth is, if you're honest with yourself, you know that sin is in the deepest recesses of who you are. How many times have you woken up either literally or metaphorically and said, I I can't believe I just did that. I can't believe I said that. I can't believe I hurt that person. Never, never thought I would do that. Sin is very much alive and well in the world and in your heart. So it couldn't be more important. What's God's answer? And God's answer begins to be revealed and fleshed out for us in Genesis 12. And actually, the answer that we read about in Genesis 12 is is still the only hope for the world and for you and for me today. It still is. Still the only answer on offer. Still the only thing that really deals with the problem of sin. So let's look at this chapter. It's it, I, I've divided it up into, into four sections. Um, and, and each section, I think, teaches us something about God and something about how he, he addresses the problem of sin and evil. And the first, the first section really is just in, in verse 1. The call of the Lord. Because here's what it says in 12.1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. Now this is a very peculiar call. And it's peculiar on a number of levels. First of all, it's peculiar because it appears from a human perspective 
as if God is calling the wrong person. You know, people have tried to get around this. Uh, Abram, we, we know so much about Abram and we know so much about his later life that we, we tend to, to idolize him and make him into this, this great character. But the reality is, there's very little that we've been told about Abram up to this point in Genesis. He just sort of appears out of nowhere. In other words, when God calls Abram, you, you wouldn't, if you'd been reading Genesis from the beginning, you wouldn't say, oh, well, of course, Abram. Abram's this righteous man. No. We haven't been told anything about him. In fact, the only details we have about Abram would lead us to believe that he's exactly the wrong person for God to call. For one thing, he's about 75 years old when when this whole thing takes place. Uh, We don't know exactly the year he was. We know he's 75 when he finally leaves to go to Canaan. So he's about that age when he's called. And so so Abram is is a man who's not a young man by any means. He he lived for many, many years apart from God. He lived for many, many years and and, and done things and and he had established ties. And so it seems like exactly the wrong time for God to call anyone, much less this man. Furthermore, and this might be even more important, furthermore, Abram is childless. And this is a a very significant thing. Because what we're going to see is that one of the ways God promises to work through Abram is to make him into a great nation. There are easier people to choose to make into a great nation than this man who has no children at all, even though he's about 75 years old. So he's improbable at that level as well. And then if that weren't enough, Abram is living in what we know of, and we can still see the ruins of this city today, this this great city, Ur of the Chaldees. You can look it up. You'll still see huge monumental architecture from this city. It was a city that was, that was wealthy, that, that was secure, that was steeped in all kinds of false religions, false attempts to, to reconcile man with God. And this is Abram's, this is Abram's upbringing. This is his life. He, he, this, is, this is the culture in which he was raised. He, he brings, we might say, all kinds of baggage to this. 75 years of living in a society and a culture that is opposed to God, living in a society and culture in which there's no thought of the Lord of the Bible, sitting, living in a society and culture which is really, just on a small scale, the exact same thing that we saw with the Tower of Babel. That's all it is. And yet God calls that man, and God not only calls Abram, He calls Abram to leave all of that behind. Did you see that? Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Abram's just just like you and me. He's just as, I'm sure, interested in stability and security. And yet God calls him to leave all of that behind. And God calls him to go to a place that Abram's never even seen. God says, I'll show it to you at some point. 
All Abram has to go on is God's word, and he has to trust it. And he's perhaps the least likely candidate that we could imagine. Now this is a striking thing, but it it teaches us something about the Lord. You know, in the New Testament, Paul says this. He's looking out on the church, a church in Corinth, and he says, you know, uh, not many of you were wise according to the standards of the world. Not many of you are of high birth or great wealth. But God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And later on, Paul says it this way. He looks at himself and he realizes how frail and flawed he is and how, in one sense, inappropriate he was for the calling to which he'd been called. And and, and he says, we have this treasure of the gospel in, in jars of clay so that the excellency of the power might be from God and not from us. It's interesting because whatever God is going to do here in Genesis 12 to answer the problem of sin and evil, he's going to do it through a vessel that, that is, is an evidence of his grace. In other words, God's going to do it in such a way that at the end, if you're paying attention, you have to say that is God and God alone who has done it. God's answer to the problem of sin isn't located in some particularly special, gifted human being. It's located in something that God alone will do. Thinking about our own day and the sin within yourself and the sin in the world, I'll tell you, the Bible's very clear about this. There's not a a, a solution found within humanity. There's, there's There's no one you're going to meet who's going to solve the problem of sin in your life. There's no one we're going to elect who's going to solve the problem of sin in the world. In fact, the, the, the solution we already know is going to be found in something that God will do. And this is underscored even more when we move from the call of Abram to the covenant God makes with Abram. Because that's what God does. God makes a covenant promise to Abram beginning in verse 2. And, and, and look at who the subject is of the sentence in in each of these promises God makes. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you, I will curse. You see what God's reminding us of? That that his solution is, is his solution. That it's going to be something that he does, in this case, that he does through Abram and through Abram's descendant. So it's not something that Abram could take credit for. And it's not found within, in a sense, the stuff of humanity. It's found, it's something that God gives. It's the grace of God. 
Let's look a little bit more at this covenant promise because it's such an important theme when we go through the Bible. You know, if you're, if you're new to reading the scriptures or maybe even if you've been reading the scriptures for a long time, what you find is, as you read through the Old Testament, God reveals his, his promises, his plan, his, his salvation, his work. He reveals it very often through these, through these covenants that he makes with people. He makes a covenant here with Abram. He, he, makes, he makes a covenant later on with King David. He, he makes a covenant with the nation of Israel after their exiled. He, and, and it's interesting because if you think even about Jesus in the New Testament, right before Jesus is going to be betrayed and go to his death, as he, as he spreads out a meal before his disciples, what does he say? He says, this cup is, is the new covenant in my blood. This is how God works. This is the vocabulary of scripture. If you want to know what God is doing in salvation, you've got to pay attention to these covenants. And what does he say in this covenant promise to Abram? Well, I read it, but he says a number of things. First of all, he says some things to Abram personally. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great. I'll give you this land. And then, and then he actually has this, this blessing at the end of verse 3. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. You see, in one sense, the, the scope has narrowed. We've moved from talking about the whole earth and thousands of years to talking about one man and a brief period of time. But, but on the other hand, it's through that one man and his family that God's going to bless all the families of the earth. In other words, what God says is, my solution to the problem of sin in the world is going to come through what I'm going to do in your family. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this is a profound teaching because in the New Testament, the New Testament writers understand exactly how this plays out throughout the rest of the Old Testament and then in through the Gospels. And what they realize is this. They realize that that seed that, that God is speaking of here to Abram, that, that, that one through whom all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, is none other than Jesus Christ. Put, put, your, put your hand in Genesis 12 and, and turn over, if you would, to uh, Acts chapter 3. One of the earliest sermons that is, that is preached, Acts chapter 3. Peter here is speaking to some Jewish leaders, some Jewish people. It's just a couple of months after the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. It's a very gutsy sermon because he's speaking to people who have just killed Jesus not long before. And, and what he says, look at what he draws upon. He draws upon this very passage that we've been looking at. It's actually a, an, an incredible sermon, multifaceted, but I just want to come in right at the end of it. And in, um, in, in verse 25, he says, It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth 
shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wicked ways. See what Peter recognizes? Peter recognizes that 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 promised one mentioned all the way back in Genesis 12 is none other than Jesus Christ, crucified and risen again from the dead. Let me show you one other passage that makes much the same point. Turn over to Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3, listen to what Paul says. I'm going to pick up in verse 16. Galatians 3, 16. Now the promises, Paul says, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. So back thousands of years before Galatians was written, thousands of years before Peter stood up to give this sermon in Jerusalem, we have Abram. And God makes a promise to Abram. In you, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What is God's answer to the problem of sin introduced in Genesis 1 through 11? Well, it's his covenant promise of Jesus Christ, which now you and I stand on the other side of. Abraham looked forward to it. Abraham longed to see his day. But we, we are on the other side of the cross and resurrection. And we can see how God has fulfilled the promise he makes to Abram in Jesus Christ. So that's the promise God gives. Now it's more specific than that. God also unpacks his promise by talking about a land and by talking about Abram being a blessing to others. And that's going to become important, particularly as you track through the rest of Abram's life. We'll see a little bit of Abram's life in Genesis chapter 12, but we'll see more of it in the, in the following chapters. And you need to keep track of those things which are promised to Abram. Land, and then the seed promise, which is so significant, and then the notion that he'll be a blessing. That's the promise of the Lord. Now what's... Abram's response to the promise. This is very important because actually if you look at the New Testament and the way the New Testament writers understand Genesis 12 and teach us how to read it, what they show us is that not only is this chapter important for the promise of Christ, but it's also important for teaching us about the life of faith. In other words, Abraham, or Abram as he's still called in Genesis 12, is, is, a, is a kind of model believer. How does Abram respond to the promise God makes him, to this covenant promise? Well, here's what we read, verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him. He takes his relatives, the ones he can take, and he takes his possessions, but he leaves Ur 
of the Chaldees. Think about how profound this must have been for Abram. Think about how frightening this must have been for Abram. Can you imagine leaving a place where you'd lived 75 years? Leaving what may have been the greatest city in the ancient world for a place that you've never seen and only heard about from God? Trusting in a God whom your fathers did not know? Leaving everything behind. It wasn't as easy to travel in those days as it is today. It wasn't straightforward. You couldn't immediately land in a new city and expect to make new connections and pass around your resume and get a job. That's, that's not the way it worked. Abram was leaving everything behind. But he left everything because it was more important to him to hang on to the promises of God, the promise of God's Messiah, to hang on to that and to leave behind all the treasures of the world. Hebrews 11 says this. Let me read this to you. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was about to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us what Abraham was thinking this whole time. Because... He was looking for a city which has foundations, whose builder and architect is God. You you can do what you will in this life. Look for security, look for satisfaction, look for blessing, look for comfort. You probably have a list of things that if they happened in your life, you think they would bring that. Things are just a little different. You can do that. That's not the life of faith. You know, Ur of the Chaldees, as magnificent as it was, is, is gone. You, you can see the ruins of it. You can see the really beautiful clothing and jewelry that the people wore. But you know what Abraham said? I want a city that has a real foundation. A real foundation. And that means its builder and its architect has to be God. What what about you in your life? What, What kind of city are you looking to dwell in? Jesus talks about Man who builds a house on the sand. That must be something of what Abraham realized when he heard God's word. My life has no foundation to it. I'm wealthy, I'm established, I have family and friends, and I'm in the greatest city in the world. But my life has no foundation. 
I want to seek after a city whose builder and architect is God. It's very interesting because if you read through Genesis 12, and in fact, if you read through all of Genesis, what you find is that Abram never saw a physical city. He never built one. The only thing Abram is said to build, very interesting, in the land, he goes back and forth through the land, back and forth, sojourning. The only thing it ever says he built is an altar to worship the Lord. He builds altars. He worships God in the land. But, but he was looking for a city whose builder and architect is God. What does Paul say? Don't set your mind on earthly things. But instead, set your mind on heavenly things where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the life of faith. Make no mistake, it involves turning your back on the things of the world. Abram could not believe God but stay in Ur. That was not an option. There wasn't It wasn't door number three. I I like what you have to say. I want to have a name for myself and a blessing and the seed. But I'm very happy in Ur. That was not on offer. You know, that's, that's the stark choice that Jesus presents to us. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, Jesus says. Many are on it. But narrow is the gate. Narrow is the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. He says, come to me though, and I will give you rest for your souls. Are you on the broad path? Or have you entered by the narrow gate that is Jesus? Well, Abram is a model to us of faith. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 4, when he's talking about justification by faith and not by works, he says, look at Abraham. Abraham is, is justified by faith, not by works. If he was justified by works, he would have something to boast about. But what does it say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul, in Galatians chapter 3, which we just looked at, but not in the exact verses we were in, says, So then, Abraham is the father of all who believe. All who believe are sons of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile. Because that's the response that Abraham gives to God's promise. God makes a covenant promise. God gives him the gospel. Abraham receives it. I want a city with a foundation, he says. So I'm going to trust God's word more than all the treasures of Ur. However, what we see in Genesis 12 is that Abraham is a model of the believer in another way too. He is the paradigm of saving faith that we are reminded of again and again. But Abraham is also a sinner. 
He is. He's a sinner. And, and we see it because Abraham is going around through the land, worshiping God, calling on the name of the Lord uh, in public. He's publicly displaying and talking about his worship of God. But look at verse 10. Now, there was a famine in the land. Abram now is facing a, a, a real problem. He's left, he's believed, he's followed God, he worships God, but things have gotten very bad for him. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe this morning you're saying, I believe, I, 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 I'm trusting in, in Christ alone for my salvation. I'm trusting, I'm trusting in the city that God has built. I I. I, I I know I need to turn my back on the world. I, I believe that. But it's gotten so difficult as a Christian. Maybe that's you. That's, I think that's normal. There's a famine. And what Abraham does in the midst of that challenge, unfortunately, is Abraham actually demonstrates a lack of faith in each of the specific promises God gave God said, I'll give you this land. God said, I will bless you and, and bless those who bless you even. And God said, God said, I will give you this seed. And, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And what does Abraham do? He leaves the land. He fears that he's going to die. And he will not see another day. And he puts those closest to him in grave danger and actually acts as a curse on another kingdom, another family of the earth. He does the exact opposite of what God has said. He demonstrates unbelief in precisely the ways that God has spoken to him. So there's a famine. He goes down to Egypt. He leaves the land. And then he said to Sarai, his wife, verse 11, this is quite a setup. See now, I know that you're a beautiful woman. It's going to be a great conversation. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, and they will, and they will kill me, but they'll let you live. So lie, get taken in as a slave in, in Pharaoh's harem to save my skin. In every way. Abram shows unbelief. And you know, this is actually profoundly encouraging. It's sad. It's sad because what happens is Abram shows us the way sin works. You know, when you and I don't trust in what God has said, when, when we fail to believe God, when we, when we sin, you know what inevitably happens? What inevitably happens is the consequences for us are far worse than we can imagine and, and, then, and then what really strikes us at our heart is often the consequences for those closest to us are far worse than we imagine as well. Look at Abraham. He forsakes God, but in forsaking God, he also le leaves his wife to be taken into Pharaoh's household. And, and not only that, even Pharaoh did all that unwittingly 
And Pharaoh gets judged by God for it. Because God is protecting Abraham. And so Abraham's sin doesn't just, in a sense, hurt his own testimony. Here he is a few verses before, calling on the name of the Lord and now mistrusting God. But, but he also destroys those closest to him. Your sin will do the same thing. You, we've all done it. You've, you've, you've woken up at some point, either, either physically or, or metaphorically, woken up and said, I can't believe I did that. I, I, I can't believe I, I, I've hurt someone so close to me. That's what sin does. It's incredibly destructive to not trust God. To not take him at his word. We think we know better than God. We think we know how to bless ourselves. Do you see what Abraham's doing? I know how to bless myself, God, better than you know how to bless me. Isn't that what we do? God, I, I, I know you've said this is good, but, but I actually believe the opposite of it will be better for me. I can bless myself better than you, thank you very much. It's destructive and it's damaging and it's hurtful. And everyone around Abraham, everyone around him, gets cursed because of it. Massively destructive. On the other hand, there is a measure of encouragement we can draw from this. It's a warning. But there's a measure of encouragement here. And, and it's... Abram is, is a believer, but Abram is a sinner. I don't think you needed to come to church for me to tell you this, but the church is full of sinful people. Christians are sinners. Still sinners. Abraham, still a sinner. Even after his belief, even after his turning his back on the world and following God and God's promise of Christ. He's still a sinner. So are you and so am I. John says, if anyone says he's without sin, he's a liar. And the truth is not in him. Well, all we needed to do was look at Abraham to see that. But yet, even though Abraham's life of faith is punctuated with doubt, it's a roller coaster. Yet, God remains faithful to him. Isn't this an amazing thing? God remains faithful to Abraham even though he sins. God is a faithful God. God is faithful to his promise because he keeps it and we see it kept in Jesus Christ most clearly. But God is even faithful temporally to Abraham. Abraham survives, Sarah survives. God actually judges Pharaoh, even though Pharaoh didn't know what he was doing. God remains faithful to Abram. And, and not only is God faithful to Abram, he's still at work in Abram's life. If you look at the end of Abram's life and compare it to right here in Genesis 12, there's a vast difference. Abram, Abram changes as the chapters move forward. God is at work within him. We should take comfort in this because if you're a Christian... You know you're a sinner. The Bible tells you that. You see it. Everyone else sees it. But what the scripture says is, he who began a good work in you, 
he who began a good work in you will not fail to carry it to completion. Paul says, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Jesus says, the one who comes to me, I will in no way cast out, and I will raise him up on the last day. We will be like Jesus one day because he is faithful to us. He's faithful right now in your life. Whether you have strayed from him, whether you are fighting hard, he is faithful to you and will remain faithful to you. That's, that's the wonderful comfort of the life of faith. It's a narrow road. It involves turning your back on the world and trusting God's promise of what you can't see. But God is at work. And look at God even uses Pharaoh to get Abram back into the land. It's in verse 19, the end of verse 19. Here is your wife, take her and go. This is Pharaoh. He doesn't know God. He doesn't care about God. But even Pharaoh is used by God in a way that proves his faithfulness to Abraham. He's used by God to get Abraham back on the straight and narrow. Maybe that's happened in your life. Maybe someone who doesn't know the Lord has caused you to wake up. Maybe someone who doesn't know the Lord has caused you to wake up and come here. Or maybe some circumstance has been brought into your life. You know, God does that. He does it here, even with Abraham. So this model of faith is also mixed with doubt, and yet the faithfulness of God endures. Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. Get back to the land, Abram, says Pharaoh. What a faithful God. So when we take a step back from this, this chapter, this hinge of the book of Genesis, and we ask the big questions, what is God doing about sin in the world, about sin in your heart and my heart? Well, we can see some big things He is doing and has done. First of all, we see that our salvation is dependent on the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And specifically the promise that he makes here to Abram of a seed who is Jesus Christ. There's no salvation apart from Christ. There's no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. This is it. This is the only option. The promise of God which has now been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. If, you, if you're wondering about the problem of sin in your life and the problem of sin in the world, that's the answer. Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It's the only rock you can flee to for safety. It's the only foundation that won't be moved. It's the only thing you can bank your life and your eternity on. It's Jesus Christ. And then, and then secondly, the only response to that message of the gospel is what we see Abram do. It's faith, trusting in it. It's not you changing yourself. 
It's you turning your back on sin in the world and, and trusting in Christ alone. Because there is no other solution. There is no other rock. You and I need to be like Abram. We're looking for a city with a foundation, not, not whatever we're promised here, not whatever people seem to offer, not what we gravitate towards. No, we want a city with a foundation whose builder and maker is God and Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. The only response to this is faith. And then finally, believers doubt and sin. We do. And, and yet, and yet, the picture of God which emerges from Genesis 12 this improbable picture that starts with God choosing the least likely candidate and then watching him fail. This picture of God which emerges is a picture of God being faithful to his promises. If you trust in Jesus, if you trust in the promises God has made in Christ, you will not be disappointed. You will not be let down he, he, will, he will not leave you or forsake you. It will be a solid rock on which you can found your life. And so today, that's the, that's the call to us from this chapter. The call to the rock of Jesus Christ and to the faithful God of Abraham. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, for your faithfulness and love, we thank you. Indeed, as we've been reminded, your mercies are new to us every morning. Father, we pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. That we would learn from the example of Abram. And that we would continue to trust in you through the difficulties of life. Be with us, Father. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen.